days, the days of wondering, the days of trying to figure out what would happen next and what it all meant. The disciples of Jesus never really knew what to expect. That was nothing new. He had always kept them off balance, yet there was something different about this. Jesus was living in two worlds at once. He was living in the eternal world, a world of which they could simply not conceive. And he was also living in their world, the world of time and space and physical things. He would appear to them, then he would disappear to them. And whenever he appeared, his message was always that his suffering, his death, his resurrection had been according to Scripture, according to God's plan and purpose. He seemed to be saying that they could expect some of the same things. And that was hard for them. You see, they struggled to let go of the old visions, of the old expectations. And so one day they asked him outright, Lord, is this the time when you will restore your people to their rightful place? Is this the time when you will restore your people to a place of power, to a life of freedom. And Jesus not only did not answer the question, he informed them that they were asking the wrong question. How disappointing that must have been. All this time hoping for a certain future, knowing that Jesus was going about it in a most unusual way, but still hoping that it might turn out the way they expected, then to be told that they had been looking for the wrong thing. Jesus pointed them in a whole new direction. He promised that they would receive power. They would become dynamic when the Holy Spirit came into their lives. They would be his witnesses. And in the Greek language, the word there is martus, from which we get our English word martyr. They would become his martyrs. They would bear the witness in themselves, in their very being, in their lives, and if necessary, in their deaths. With that, Jesus left them. And this time, he left for good. Two messengers from the eternal realm assured them that he would return, but they gave no hint of when that would happen. So that in that moment, the overwhelming reality was that he had gone to the place of authority, that he had gone to the place of sovereignty, that he had told them what was expected of them and left them with the promise that the Holy Spirit would come and make his home with them. In this encounter, the pattern for Christian discipleship is set for the foreseeable future. It is set for their time, it is set for our time, and for all times in between. They followed from that point on, they followed and we follow Christ who is beyond us, and Christ who is within us. 
It is a paradox, and in some ways it's a temporal contradiction. On the one hand, we follow a Christ who is an ancient man. His story, his teaching, his instructions about life are 2,000 years old. And this is almost comical to me in light of the great emphasis we put on generational differences in the church nowadays. Again and again, we older folks are told that young folks see things differently. They think differently. They expect different things than we do. And we are challenged to adapt or either to get out of the way altogether. And whenever I hear that about the emerging church of the future and how different it will be from the church of today and how our younger people expect so many different things I remember when we were young, and we were saying the same thing to our elders. And now we are the older ones, some of us at least. But you see, the truth is that the truth is the same now as it was when we were young. And the truth is that we claim to be about a man who lived so long ago that whatever differences in time there are between us and younger people are nothing by comparison. Jesus lived so long ago that none of us have any sort of direct genealogical links to him. Jesus is a man who is completely beyond us in the past. We follow an ancient Christ. And we also follow a Christ who is beyond time. When Jesus enters into the eternal realm, we presume that time ceases to matter. Whatever it is like where he is, it is utterly beyond us here. There is an impenetrable veil between where he is and where we are. As he said to his disciples before he left, where I'm going, you can't come. There is a necessary separateness to his being and ours. Jesus simply isn't with us in the same way that he was with those first disciples in the flesh. He is beyond us. But wonder of wonders, and this really is amazing, he is not with us. He is within us. This is the gift of the Spirit. This is the life of the Trinity breathed into our being. If we allow him to be, if we open ourselves to his presence, Jesus is within us, integrating himself into all of the complex and varied components of our lives that make us who we are. And there is a power in his presence. It's not brute force. It's not mechanical competence. It's not superhuman prowess. It is a deep, mysterious, formative presence that enables us to become the very ones we are made to be. The scripture says that we are given power to become the children of God. 
that by his presence, it is a power to become those in whom the sacred image of God is restored into the very likeness of Jesus. And that is the power. It is the power to become his witness, to be one in whom his life is evident in our life. Now, this means that the life of the Christian disciple is not one in which we can read a few stories and obey a few rules and think we have it. Our very life in Christ is itself a paradox. On the one hand, there is this ultimate mystery. On the other hand, there is this intimate presence. And we live in the tension. We live in the necessity to think, to feel, to pray, to ponder, to decide, to act. All the while knowing that we know only in part. All the while seeing that we see as through a mirror dimly. We follow Christ knowing finally that we often expect and want what we cannot have. We follow the Christ who is beyond us and who is within us, acknowledging that life rarely turns out like we think it should or will. Nevertheless, Jesus is within us, working with the raw material of our imperfect mortal lives to make us become the very ones we are meant to be. We follow the Christ who is beyond us and within us, confident that through this paradoxical process, we become his witnesses. It is a, it is a mystery. The mystery, of course, is so evident to us when we come to the table. Here, we have ordinary bread and Welch's grape juice, about as plain as any fare could be, and yet, through the pouring out of God's Spirit, these ordinary elements become for us the very life of Jesus. And as we take the bread, as we drink the cup, we are reminded that he is within us, alive, and working to grow us up into love. We come to this table knowing full well that we have failed and are not worthy to be here, and yet we are all welcome, we are all invited, and we are all given the means of grace. And so we make our confession. And in that confession, we hear 
the good news. Our confession is written in our bulletin. I invite you to join me in that confession. Let us pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. And now as forgiven and reconciled people, we offer ourselves and we offer our gifts to God. We sing our call to offertory. Our ushers come forward and we give generously. <laughs>